This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Dwight Schultz. I played Reginald Barkley, otherwise known as Broccoli, on Star Trek Next Generation and Voyager. You're listening to Trek FM. T.O. Gray Hot. Welcome, listeners, to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Amy Nelson. Richard is away this week, but I, of course, still have the wonderful Justin Ozer. Justin, how are you doing today? Doing great. Uh, great to be back recording Earl Grey. I think we had a week off in between, and now Richard's away this week, but... Uh... We have a special guest, and I'm excited about that, so great to be here. Yes, we do have a special guest with a very special topic. But before we introduce our special guest, let's get some Babel Conference feedback. This is Earl Grey 266, where we talked Lost Episodes, Part 6. Justin, start us off. Yeah, so uh, Lori Damon Bessie, hopefully I'm getting that right. Uh, says, I've been wondering how the Federation hopes to maintain the Prime Directive in the galaxy while other warp-capable cultures are out there potentially able to meddle first. So the Ferengi Gold story would be an important story to develop. Before TNG, we had seen the Klingons racing to colonize unaligned worlds and harvest their mineral wealth before the Organian Treaty. We don't see that play out again in a major way until the Bajoran and Cardassian conflict, and of course the issue was huge there. C-Spot Run was neat, a culture that wants to embrace a simpler set of ideals, but with a Fahrenheit 451 twist. So thank you, Lori, for your comments. Glad you enjoyed that, and you had a lot of, of great feedback on, on those episodes. We appreciate it. Yeah, I am not aware of Fahrenheit 451. So sorry. Oh, it's a it's it's a Ray Bradbury sci-fi classic. Yes. You should definitely read it. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, my kids at school read it, and so <laughs> I hear well, the you Well, sh- you should... Two, you should read what your your students are talking about. Oh, yeah. that's English. I mean- <laughs> well, uh. I know, but uh, you know, it actually has a reference there to the uh, temperature at which paper burns. So, oh, there you go. Some, Some math science science stuff. in there. Okay. Yeah. Well, we have Chris Trebuzio says, I enjoyed this episode. I am on par with Earl Grey panel in all of what you've discussed. I hate to rank them, but Legacy would definitely be way bottom of the list, as that would need the most work. As for the bonus question, I like Nog. Much to your point, the great written and equally greatly portrayed character arc for this character is one of the many in 50 plus years of Trek. Well, thank you, Chris, for your comments and listening to the end and answering our uh, bonus question as well. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Chris. And and listeners, if you're not listening to the end, you are actually missing some bonus content here. We asked a question in that one, who's your favorite Ferengi? And we had an interesting discussion on that. So from time to time, we'd like to slip some stuff in there and we have some fun toward the end. So make sure you listen past the previously on Trek FM a little further, and then we have you know some fun kind of bonus stuff for you. Yep, we do. Yeah. And actually, Amy, before we introduce our guest, <laughs> I just wanted to make a little note here. So in the previous episode, we had said that the next time we would be starting a series on deleted scenes, we had some scheduling issues, so we're not able to do that this week. But we do definitely have a special topic, but I just wanted to let listeners know that that one about deleted scenes is going to come up a couple episodes from now instead of today. Yes, life sometimes happens and gets in the way. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so now we get to introduce our special guest, Joe Keegan. Joe, welcome to Earl Grey. 
Amy, Justin, thank you for having me again today. A little bone to pick, though, with you. Um, oh. You haven't seen um, Farscape or Stargate based on our postcards episode yesterday, and now we hear that you haven't read Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> Do you spend all your time like gambling on the strip? You don't have time to. Oh, it wow. is right there. But <laughs> well, no, I'm a math teacher. I know the odds, and so I do not risk it. That's, that's probably why my platinum is too precious to me. So, Joe, you are a science teacher in the real world, and you came up with this amazing topic um, of science in the next generation. So what got you thinking about this? I think um, I was a teenager when The Next Generation first aired, and I already had an interest in science at the time, and I knew that I wanted to go and study um, physics at university. I ended up being physics and astronomy. But Star Trek was always that go-to kind of comfort blanket, and I always noticed the science that they were dealing with, and it always resonated with me. So I think it, it inspired me to go on and do um, science as a, a career. How long have you been teaching? It's 11 or 12 years. I could, I'd have to go work it out. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's physics specifically that you teach, is that right? Well, yeah, in Scotland, as a science teacher, physics is my main subject. So when you get to the senior years in high school, I will teach students physics. But in the lower end of high school, um, I'll teach like general science. So I'll teach about biology, about chemistry and some physics which I really enjoy because I've never studied really chemistry or biology before to an extent. So to teach it, you have to kind of really become familiar with what you're teaching and be kind of up to date in the kind of current understanding of those sciences as well. Okay. Well, we are going to discuss uh, the science in TNG and we're going to lofty goal, try and get through each of the seasons and uh, we've highlighted, you know, between four or five episodes for each season uh, to talk about. All right. So in season one, we're going to highlight uh, three episodes, Encounter at Farpoint, Home Soil, and The Battle. Um, hopefully you remember these episodes. If not, uh, Encounter at Farpoint is the first episode, the uh, pilot, if you will. And we have, remember, uh, John Luke Picard leads the crew on its maiden voyage to examine a new planetary station for trade with the Federation. On the way, they encounter Q, an omnipotent extra-dimensional being who challenges humanity as a barbaric inferior species. Picard and his new crew must hold off Q's challenge and solve the puzzle of Farpoint Station on Deneb 4, a base that is far more than it seems to be. So uh, talk to me, Joe. Why are we highlighting this episode? I needed to include an episode about um, the holodeck um, and our understanding of holography at the moment. Um, and I thought, let's go encounter a far point. It's the first time that we'd seen the actual holodeck in a live action um, episode. I think we'd, they'd mentioned something or we'd seen something in the animated series. Yeah, but it's not called that. It's like a... A recreational deck. Yeah, it's like a like recreational that. deck, and they can yeah. just have a certain scenery. It's not as sophisticated, but. Ah, okay. Um, so, holography. Um, we've all seen holographic technology to certain extents, um, whether it be on banknotes, at least banknotes in the UK. Um, in the sure UK, the not here, in the no. US. <laughs> um, just as a security measure to make them less easy to forge. Um, we've seen holographic toys. Now, where you change your orientation to the image and it, the image looks 3D. However, there have been a couple of more recent examples of kind of cool uses of holography. Most of them, or the two that notable ones that I found, were for music concerts. 2012, Coachella must be a music... It's um, a festival. Festival, yeah. Um, it was Tupac perform in hologram form performed with Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. And then at the 2014 Billboard Music Awards, we saw Michael Jackson um, being projected on stage performing a song after his death. So um, the coolest thing that I know that's right here in my backyard on the Strip, they have MJ1, which is a Cirque show, and they have a hologram of Michael Jackson. And it is unbelievably so amazing. 
and they have it there. He's dancing and you've got people walking behind him and around him and almost interacting with him. And the dancers are dancing his move. I mean, it's a sight to see if you come to Vegas, that's definitely a show I would recommend. I'm coming to Vegas. Wow. Wow. I knew. I'm so excited. Also, another Vegas um, mention is the Consumer Electronics Show this year. A couple of years ago, uh, virtual reality was the big thing at CES. Uh, but now there's not a lot of companies highlighting you know, cool uses for hologram technology. I googled quickly um, some medical uses. And it's quite interesting because we saw a cool hologram of Spock's brain in Project Daedalus Discoveries last episode where Admiral Cornwell was questioning him and they scanned his brain and they have are they trialing holographic technology for medical uses at the moment. So using x-rays to map out inter internal organs in great detail and then using laser interferometry to produce really complicated three-dimensional holographic models so physicians can kind of see what's wrong and kind of map out the best course of action for treatment or surgery. I mean, do you feel like with all this stuff, we're kind of on our way to something like the holodeck? I think we're going to be further ahead when we get to 2360 um, than <laughs> they are in the episodes. Yeah. I think with invent, some of the sci-fi has always been good at that, um, inventing a technology um, and then in real life, we kind of quickly catch up with that. Yeah, we're already much further along with our pad technology. Yes. <laughs> Would you lump uh, like when mothers-to-be get those scans and it's the 3D and you can see, you know, the baby inside the 3D? Would you consider that part of holography? Not necessarily. I think the hologram is how you project that image into real life. Okay. So with the, uh, a 3D ultrasound, as far as I'm aware, it's just um, very accurate ultrasound mapping to produce a two-dimensional image that looks 3D on a computer screen. But I don't suppose there's anything to stop them from taking that information and putting it into a, some kind of hologram generator and projecting a model of your baby in front of you using right. light mm. and lasers. Okay. Which would be awesome. Well, uh, the ne next episode is Home Soil, and that is where the Enterprise-D visits an outpost in the process of terraforming a dead planet. They find the science team threatened by a mysterious new form of life. So this is where we get the famous quote, ugly bags of mostly water. Ugly bags of mostly water. <laughs> you have to say it like that, Amy, though. You have to say ugly bags of mostly water. Yes. <laughs> yeah, basically, I've chosen this episode because of the ugly bags of mostly water and Dr. Crusher's discussion of the, the definition of life. She defines life as must having the ability to assimilate, respirate, reproduce, grow, develop, move, secrete, and excrete. And that kind of agrees with our current definition of life. Has to have one or more cells, has to be able to... Um, do homeostasis, which is ability to have a kind of stable equilibrium of your internal processes, um, has to be able to metabolize food for energy, grow, adapt to its surroundings, and um, respond to some kind of st stimulus and reproduce. But our de current definition of life is a definition based on all the life we see on Earth, because we have no other examples of life. So we've got one data point of life and all life on earth had a, a common origin millions of years ago. So um, there is some discussion in the biological community of getting a, a general theory of life. So a theory of life that would cover any life you might encounter elsewhere in the universe. But we're nowhere near getting to that because, like I said, we only have one example and that's earth life. I'm just curious, based on what we see in Star Trek, would that actually get you to a more general definition of life? Or is what we see generally fitting into what we see on Earth and how we define things that way? Well, I suppose there was um, later on we're going to discuss the little robots, which are called exocomps. And Data 
wants to protect them because they're they're trying to protect themselves by, by um, from being asked to go into dangerous environments to fix kind of industrial machinery, essentially. So there is an argument: Are they alive? They're not comprised of one or more biological cells, so they they don't fit that one rule. Data is classed as being alive, yeah, but he doesn't meet those biological rules. So you'd have to, if you wanted a general theory of life, you'd have to have um, include non-biological life forms as well and non-carbon-based life forms, way above my understanding. But, but presumably you could use some of what you see in Star Trek to expand the definition to those things. Yeah, I suppose you could, yeah. Yeah, but I'll, but I'll bet whenever we do actually find life that's out there, it'll be something that we don't expect <laughs> that'll really expand what we think our definition should be. Have you seen the movie Life? I have not. It just came on our Netflix in the UK. It's based on the it's set on the International Space Station, and they have a probe returning from Mars, and it's been collecting soil samples. But the Martian probe identified that it contained single-celled organisms, so they they capture it with one of the big ISS robotic arms, and then bring it on board. But mm. it's a sci-fi horror. And it quickly evolves into some evil xenomorphic creature that kind of kills all the crew. But in that movie, there's discussions of, is this alive? Is it kind of fitting with our definitions of life? One of the interesting points was that a bit like stem cells, which have the ability to become any cell, this creature was comprised of cells that simultaneously acted as any cell it required. So all all of the cells in the body were brain cells, all of the cells were retina cells, so it could see with every cell in its body. Um, all of the cells were muscle cells, so it made it super strong, hmm. which was interesting. Very science fantasy, but interesting nonetheless. Okay. So we also wanted to talk about the battle, and this is where we have a group of Ferengi pre- present Captain Picard with the derelict remains of his old starship, and he begins to lose himself in the past. So why are we talking about this one, Joe? So although it's not specifically mentioned, it makes me think about Einstein's theories of relativity, um, specifically with the Picard maneuver. And so in the Picard maneuver, when the stargazer was badly damaged, he took the stargazer um, to high warp, directly towards the Ferengi ship so that the Ferengi sensors would think that the ship was in two places at once and Mm -hmm. therefore they had been outmaneuvered and so they would be more likely to retreat. Interestingly, I've been teaching special relativity to my higher physics class recently and it's super comp. It's one of those things you teach once every year um, and you you know it in great detail for when you teach it. But then for the rest of the year, you don't have to teach it, so you instantly forget um, the proofs on like time dilation and length contraction um, because it's, it's super difficult to understand. It's bizarre. It's bizarre stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so <laughs> about um, his special relativity, as you approach the speed of light, time slows down for you. So essentially, I could travel uh, on a spaceship at 90% the speed of light um, for say, five years, and come back and more time has elapsed on Earth. Say, ten years has elapsed on Earth, but only five years has elapsed, elapsed for me. Um, we, I got my class to do a calculation, and they are all aged about 16, 17, and I'm 41. And I was like, how, for how long would I have to travel if I were to travel at 90% the speed of light to then come back and for us all to be the same age. <laughs> yeah. How fun. Cool. What a fun problem. <laughs> yes. Um, so it was something like I'd have to go out, travel out for 17 years in my time, and then to come back, and they would have aged like 30 years, so we'd all be aged like in Is that 50s. 17 years at 90% the speed of light? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Or um, half of 17, um, eight and a half there and eight and a half back. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because it's actually like provable time travel. You can really time travel. I mean, and actually, like any speed that you're moving in relation to someone else, you are time traveling. 
like the time that you experience is different, even if it's like little fractions, because I think they've done studies with, you know, jet planes and being on the space station mm -hmm. and all of that. Yeah. And there are fractions of a second that are different <laughs> than someone that's, that's stationary on earth. Well, they did it. I think they did it back in the eighties or nineties on the, uh -huh. the NASA space shuttle and they put an atomic clock on it and they had an atomic clock down in earth. And after a few orbits of earth, they brought them back down and they had different times on them. But interestingly, uh, all our GPS systems um, have to be programmed um, to take account of the speed that they're traveling at and the fact that they're more outside the Earth's gravitational well than we are on the surface because there's more um, more relativistic time dilation that happens there. So if it wasn't for Einstein's knowledge, then our GPS systems um, wouldn't work. And it's actually the interplay between two things. It's the speed and the gravity that it's feeling, right? Yes. So you essentially, you can't tell if you're on the surface of a planet at rest being kind of dragged down to the center by the Earth's gravity. Um, you can't tell the difference between that and accelerating in a spaceship at 9.8 meters per second squared. There's no, there's no difference between those two things. Oh, right. Yeah your weight would essentially be the same. Just a question though, Joe, because in, in the episode, the battle Picard's going at warp. So it's not really the relativistic effects, no. but it makes you think of it, right? Yes. It, that, that's why I kind of, it's not specifically mentioned um, because there's another thing about relativity. If you're on a, sh a ship, say travel and you are traveling at the speed of light, say, which is our current understanding says isn't possible. Um, and you shine a torch out the window at the front then that beam of light, those photons, will recede away from the ship in a forward direction at the speed of light, even though you're traveling at the speed of light. And they are, though still, but they're not traveling at twice the speed of light. It's, it's, it's really weird stuff because we, we never get anywhere near a speed where it, you can see the effects, so it just seems bizarre to us. Yes, but math, power of maths has proven it. That's the power of math, people. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's go to season two. Now, in Unnatural Selection, we have the Enterprise investigating the deaths of the crew of the USS Lantry, who all died of old age. And a great Pulaski episode. So, Joe, why are we talking about this one? Well, I am not sure. I'll have to rewatch the episode, but I'm not sure what caused their deaths whether it was some weird alien disease or some other spatial anomaly that caused it. but Oh, don't you remember what... So in that one, no. they were doing... Weren't, it wasn't that the one where they were doing these these tests oh, with the genetically enhanced people. No, this is something... Is that what this one is? Yeah, no, they have... They beam over this like perfect... And he's supposed to be a teenager, but he looks like a full-grown man, all muscular and stuff, and he's in stasis. And then, yes. so it's these, they're trying in, to he's enhance. He's in like, he's been vacuum packed. Yeah, he's vacuum packed. And, and they're, yeah. And so then when they release it, then that, then those enzymes or whatever. But I think what happened is they have these people that are kind of like perfect and, and meant to re like destroy any like virus or infection really quickly. Yes, the but antibodies, something happens, yeah. The antibodies, but something happens that it's so strong that it makes it something somehow that's really powerful that attacks like other people and makes them age and die quickly i think that's what happens yeah okay right so um my thoughts were that as possible inspiration for writing this episode there are a couple of um real life conditions um which um, basically have symptoms of premature aging first one happens in children both of which are genetic conditions and they're both fatal so hutchison's guilford progeria syndrome um, which was discovered or first seen by Jonathan Hutchison in 1886. Um, it's called progeria from the Greek um, pro meaning er or before or early and geria meaning old age. And basically it's identified in children and the average life expectancy is 13 years and affects mm. one in four million births worldwide. Um, so if you ever see a child with progeria, they're typically, um, they look very small and underdeveloped. But they have like the faces of like people kind of seventy years older. 
Really? I didn't yeah. know that actually that I hadn't heard of this uh this disease. I didn't know that's something that actually happened. There's the adult version which is called um Werner syndrome or Werner syndrome. It's a German called Otto Werner in nineteen oh four. It's very similar to progeria, but in adults and life expectancy is typically around about fifty years old. Wow. So yeah. It doesn't affect many people worldwide, but their genetic conditions. And I thought that's I can imagine a writer on TNG having maybe heard of it and then using it as the the seed. Or the original series, because that was there was that episode, The Deadly Years, where they prematurely age, right? Oh, okay. I'll have to rewatch the TOS again. <laughs> I, I don't know. I remember it because I think it's funny just seeing like whenever they try to put on the old age makeup and then, you know, many years later, you see what the actors actually look like and they look yes. better than the old age oh. makeup. <laughs> yeah, right? that's true. <laughs> like William Shatner now looks a lot better than like the old age makeup in that episode. But anyway. Or like Patrick Stewart as... Um, Inner light. Yeah, as Cayman. Yeah. Cayman, yeah. Looks better than that. <laughs> a Cayman looks horrific. Yeah. That <laughs> hot. But yeah. but like, yeah, it's it's really interesting. There are these actual syndromes and um yeah, I mean that when I think about things like that, it's like I wish that we had, you know, a federation type medicine that would really be able to handle these things. Because I think in that episode on natural selection, Pulaski figures something out and we've cured it. It's cool. <laughs> you know, they yeah, use the transporter. Episode. Oh, is it the transporter? Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. When in doubt, the transporter. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, that's really interesting. All I think right. That's one so of the really our... cool. Th- oh. oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, sorry. I was just going to say it's one of the really cool things that I was going to mention later about um, our current medical technology in terms of um, gene editing. I think a lot of these genetic mm. disorders will just go the way of history and mm. we won't see them. Like within the next hundred years. We'll have done away with lots of diseases just because we now have the ability to go in and edit things at will. All right. Well, let's move to season three. We're going to talk about Evolution, The Hunted, Tin Man, and Hollow Pursuits. Now, in Evolution, we have an obsessed scientist arriving on the Enterprise D to perform a once-in-a-lifetime experiment. Accidentally releasing nanites, however, threaten both it and the ships. So, our nanites, uh, why are we talking about this one, Joe? Well, nanites are a part of it, but they are in orbit of a collapsing neutron star, I think, and they mention the term neutronium. So, neutronium isn't a substance, it's um, a theoretical substance comprised entirely of neutrons, uh, which isn't in nature supposed to exist. However, the U.S. National Nuclear Data Center has a series of like wallet cards and they list the first isotope as an element with the symbol N, lowercase n, for like a neutron and the atomic number zero and mass of one, which is a neutron. So their first isotope... So the thing is about um, a single neutron would very quickly decay um, through beta decay. And it would become a proton, an electron, and it would emit bos- a W boson, I think, and uh, an anti-electron neutrino, I think. So, point is, a neutron on its own will decay down and become a proton um, and eject an electron. And that proton will essentially be a hydrogen nucleus. So, I just like the fact that um, all our scientific evidence and calculations haven't pointed towards a stable version of this neutronium, like no collection of neutrons together would bind itself together to form a a stable nucleus. It would break down very quickly. But I like that fact that they'd included it. Yeah, well, um, but I I was just looking up some information on memory alpha, but I thought neutronium was something that they found in neutron stars, but it's some kind of mineral that's really strong. It's not the neutrons itself, I don't think. Well, in real, I suppose, I suppose this is our real life understanding of what these terms are in, in okay. TNG. And neutronium is an actual term used to describe a substance comprised entirely of neutrons. Interesting. Right, would be highly improbable because the neutrons themselves wouldn't make a substance because they would revert. I, I guess my thought on that, I think the first time this term comes up is in the original series episode, The Doomsday Machine, where that machine is actually like has an outside hull of neutronium. So maybe yes. from that uh, from that experience, they figure out how to harvest it and make it stable. <laughs> mm, I don't know. 
but yeah, it seemed, but it's funny because they talk about all these different kinds of substances on Star Trek, like there's neutronium and duranium and all this other stuff. And I can't tell which is actually like the hardest and most resilient. It seems like they're always saying like, yeah, it's really resilient and hard. Dilithium is my favorite because it doesn't exist. Yeah. But it's like the... It certainly doesn't exist in our present understanding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the other part of this episode was the nanotech part of it. Um, there's lots of cool uses for nanotech, um, like carbon nanotubes. So basically, if you take if you take a piece of cell, take a pencil, yeah, and a piece of paper, and you shade in an area on the piece of paper, and you take a piece of cell tape and you place it on top of the pencil shading, and then you lift the tape off, you're going to have a very very fine layer of carbon atoms because your pencil leads are made of um, graphite, which are com- which is comprised of entirely of carbon atoms. Um, so that, you've basically made a single sheet of graphene. And what they can do with that, they don't use sellotape and paper and pencils, but what they can do is they take those sheets of carbon atoms and they roll them up into long hollow cylinders called carbon nanotubes, which have a myriad of uses, um, Kind of in the near future, we'll see, um, like molecular syringes. So because they're hollow, you can pick up individual atoms with them and manipulate things at the atomic level. Um, they have a higher thermal transmission coefficient, so they transfer heat. So they're thinking about using them as um, to cool computers down, much better than the liquid cool technology that we have or using copper as a thermal conductor. Um, other things, like closer to Borg-style nanites, will get little robots that you'll be able to inject and they'll either be there to kind of seek out and destroy viruses or cancer cells or regulate internal functions. I think we're we're very early days of nanotechnology, but I think we're going to do some amazing things with it. And it's not all going to go hol- horribly wrong. They're not going to take over our brains and make us into zombies not yet yes let's hope no. not <laughs> yeah uh well i feel like i'm i'm like in your science class learning all this stuff Joe. <laughs> that's good good every day should be a school day <laughs> well the hunted uh is where we have the enterprise d is reviewing a seemingly idyllic planets application for federation membership an escaped prisoner leads her crew to discover an ugly secret, the government's shameful treatment of its war veterans. Uh, so this one, yeah, was a powerful episode, I thought, but uh, why are we discussing it here? The soldier, guys, super, sh- super soldier. Um, he, we see him at times um, being invisible to shipboard sensors. And he can he escapes from a transporter beam at one point, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's able to get outside of like a force field to try yeah. and contain him in, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's that built in ability. And that that, that kind of led me to think about cybernetic implants that people get. Maybe not cybernetic implants, but technological implants that people are increasingly getting. So we've had things like um pacemakers for years to regulate um, people's heartbeats. Um, we've you've we've got a whole slew of different wearable devices like Fitbits to monitor your heart rate. Apple's new Apple Watch can perform ECGs on you if you've got a heart condition and upload them to your cardiologist to monitor your heart if you have problems with your heart. Um, they've invented tattoo ink um, that responds to blood sugar levels um, as and it changes color based on your blood sugar being too high or too low. So if you've got a tattoo and you're diabetic, you can just go, oh, I need to eat a bar of chocolate or I need to take an insulin dose or whatever. We men- we talked about in Postcard yesterday about the mention of Cyberdyne, now the Terminator company that invents Skynet. Um, Cyberdyne's an a- an a- Cyberdyne is an actual Japanese company and they've made an exoskeleton called HAL-5. So basically, it's a kind of a wearable device, and it allows you to move around um, with greater power and speed, which is very cool. So I was just thinking about all these different 
kind of technological things that we're putting on or in our bodies today um, that kind of, in a way, take us closer to being that super soldier. So I was thinking of one device that my uh, older friend is thinking about getting is this device uh, for her knee. She's had knee replacement, but it hasn't been successful. So they insert, they're going to insert this device that will send out electrical shocks to numb the pain and, you know, take care of the nerves or something like that. And I was like, oh my gosh. And it's like Wi-Fi or something. I don't know. I don't know. I need to learn more about it before she gets it done. But you know, it's like when it senses that there's pain, it's sending out this little small electromagnetic shock to control the pain. That's that's very cool. Yeah, I mean, it, there. I think there are all of these things that we're on the cusp of to kind of add to what our body does or implant in them, which I think may lead to some interesting questions about like what it means to be human and how it might change your experience if you add all these things. So that's more of a philosophical than a scientific question, but it makes me think about those things. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about how our kind of addiction to technology and how that changes our human experience and our connection with other humans. Obviously, just now the three of us are talking um, and we're widely separated. I think it's a positive use of technology, but you see... Um, kids in school, you walk into school in the morning and they're all sitting around just staring at their phones. Yeah. Imagine when you when you don't actually have to have an external device, you can have something within you to be able to access that stuff. That's, I think, when things would really change. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my echo just came on. Alexa was just chirping away in the background. You'll hear, at some point, you'll hear Alexa randomly. Try, trying to get in on the conversation. <laughs> yeah, clearly. That's what he's listening to us talking about our interaction <laughs> with technology. <laughs> what do you mean? I have only positive uses. <laughs> so she grows arms and legs and walks over and starts to strangle me. There's an echo in my neck. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen today, at least. No, no. <laughs> like that space probe and discovery could spontaneously evolve. So let's move on to Tin Man, and this is one of Richard's favorites, and we have the Enterprise races against Romulans to make first contact with a powerful entity codenamed Tin Man. All right, so why are we talking about this one? Life in space, life that hasn't maybe evolved on a planet that we have no evidence of anywhere but there's been lots of examples in star trek so we've got encountered at far point with those giant space jellyfish and um, we've got the gorman gander in star trek discovery um the entity that was never named in galaxy's child that gave birth um and then went to the asteroid belt and uh, met its other siblings um in discovery we've got the mycelial network yeah uh, a lot of examples of um, life in space that maybe hasn't evolved on planets but is certainly biological in nature um, and is spacefaring to a certain extent but I'll be really in a couple of examples that I found um, you know about um, Saturn's moon Enceladus and mm -hmm. Enceladus has unusually warm temperatures for its location but because of its orbit around Saturn it undergoes this kind of gravitational um, kind of um, it gets like a squashed. Effect, right? Yeah, it gets squashed like a a bouncy ball. Yeah, um, and that um, elastic squashing causes friction and causes the subterranean oceans to heat up. So NASA and other space agencies are thinking that it might be warm enough to harbor some kind of microorganisms. And also, we found. Um, signs of water on Mars um, recently. And obviously, one of the ingredients for life, or life as we know it on Earth, is to have liquid water. Um, there is no liquid water on Mars. It's all frozen. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I'm like, well, I heard it was ice. And is that the same thing as water? I don't know. Yes, it's just frozen. But it has to be, I suppose, as for, for life, we have to have liquid water. Yeah. Well, there, there, there was probably liquid water somewhere in the past. And I think the ice that's there, a lot of it's carbon dioxide ice, isn't it? Yeah. On the caps, yeah, certainly carbon dioxide. 
But actually something I was thinking about when you're talking about all this space-borne life, like the space jellyfish and Tin Man and all of that, they, if I'm remembering right, they have actually found in interstellar space some of the building blocks of life like amino acids, right? So there could, I don't know, maybe be something that would be built up, but they found some like chemical interactions that happen that, that it's, it's, <laughs> it's far from like life, but they have found some things like amino acids, right? Um, I'm not sure if they have. Um, I will have to Google it. I suppose if they have, then uh, there's two theories of uh, the evolution of life on Earth. Was it kind of the spontaneous um, coming together of atoms to form like simple amino acids, then forming proteins and then more um, more complex life? Or was where these amino acids introduced from some kind of comet or meteor impact from elsewhere in the universe? Yeah, I, actually, um, I was looking it up. I, th- I think they have found some amino acids in space or even on comets. So okay. there are some things out there that might be important to building life. I just find the idea that life, you know, living in a vacuum would be kind of weird, but maybe. <laughs> I suppose we are only used to seeing life on Earth and growing up in a gravitational field with a, an oxygen-rich atmosphere. Like you said, we have one data point, which is Earth. Yeah. We don't even have multiple data points in our own solar system. Mm-hmm. So, But given the vastness of the universe, there has to be life elsewhere. Yeah, there. I think there has to be some kind of life. It's just a question of like where and how frequent and how much of it is actually could be considered sentient or on the level that we're at. Who mm-hmm. knows? <laughs> yeah, let's just first find life and then we can determine if it's sentient. So let's get to hollow pursuits, and we have Lieutenant Barkley, an introverted diagnostic engineer, is having difficulties dealing with his fantasies. This one is very interesting, and I'm wondering why are we talking about this one, Joe? There's a scene towards the end in engineering where they're trying to identify what's what's causing all the malfunctions on the ship, and I I like the mention that they've made up lots of names of either elements or compounds or minerals to explain what might be going on. So they, they name Jackmanite, which only has a half-life of 15 seconds. Selginium and Leucovexedrine are highly toxic, so people will have started to die before it made its way around the ship. Uh, Salkskidum and Invidium, both of which haven't been used for decades. However, Invidium was used in medical containment fields, and the Michalax that they just took a a shipment of like sealed containers, medical containment jars um, from, they are still using Invidium. So it turns out Invidium was what was responsible. And it's just like that kind of, it's a bit of a nod to chemistry, the chemistry of the future. And it'd be interesting to see when we get there, how the chemistry of Star Trek agrees with chemistry of now. Because now, within the last couple of years, we've added three elements to the periodic table. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. When was the last one added and how many are there currently now? So we've now got 118 elements on the periodic table and they have placeholders in place for when we confirm the discoveries of like element 119, which has the placeholder name of Ununonium. Un, one, non for nine, so 119-neum. Um, in 2015, we added four elements. We added element number 113, Nihonium, which is named after Japan. I think Nihon is the another name for Japan. Um, element number 115, which was Moscovium, named after Moscow. Uh, element number 117, Tennessee, named after the state of Tennessee. And element number 118, Organesson. And for uh, forgot to google what organesson is named after but that was first <laughs> observed in 2002 but it took till 2015 for the international community to recognize it as one of the new elements and before you ask why is it 113 115 117 and 118 it's because the other ones in between like 114 and 116 had already been discovered i think 116 is livermorium named after Lawrence livermore um, there's a California university named after him as well, and there's a city of Livermore. Well, there's a there's a there's the Livermore Laboratory in Berkeley. I yes, think, that's that's yeah. He was yeah. very famous nuclear scientist. Cool. 
So when these things come up, like, and sometimes they mention things, and I think I was trying to look it up on Memory Alpha. I think they have things that try to go beyond like where we are now, like even yes. up to 230, I think it is. So, but like the, these ones that we've discovered that are higher up on the periodic table, they only last for a tiny fraction of a second before they degrade, right? Yeah, these transuranic um, elements are super unstable. That's why we don't see them in nature, so we have to synthesize them in labs, and they've got incredibly short half-lives. Um, being so heavy, containing so many protons and neutrons in your nucleus makes you really unstable. So naturally, you'll break down. You'll be highly radioactive, and you'll emit alpha particles and beta particles and gamma rays just to lose some of that extra mass and extra energy to become something more stable. Mm-hmm. But somehow in Star Trek, it seems like they're working with these things that are even heavier that are stable somehow. Who knows how they do that? <laughs> there is a theory that we'll get to a point, we'll get to a number where suddenly things become more stable for whatever reason. But I don't know about the science. That hasn't that. happened yet. <laughs> no, no, not yet. So super stable transuranic elements, I think they're called. Um, Interesting. not found any evidence for them. Wow. That's very interesting. I was trying to think like if I could remember how many elements there were when I went to high school, because there's a lot more now. <laughs> I think it was 109 when I was at high school, 105, 109. Yeah. It was in the hundreds. I was or, thinking 109. Yeah. I think it was fairly similar for me. Maybe it was 110 or something, but it was about that. And they've continued making more. <laughs> I remember my evil science teacher in middle school made us draw the atoms for the first 20 uh, elements. Oh, really? And draw like how many electrons are in each So we had to draw the rings and up to 20. I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I still vividly remember that. (laughs) But could you replicate it just now? Could you draw? I probably could. I think I could remember how many uh, electrons are in the first at least three rings. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Some, that was beaten into my head as well. I think I kind of remember that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, did, okay. Did, did, so I me- sorry, did I mention that there's going to be a test at the end? <laughs> yes. The science. There will be test questions. No, you didn't. No. Um, surprise. Listeners, you better watch out. We have two teachers on mic today, so there's definitely going to be a test. Are you guys just going to test me because I'm the only one who isn't a teacher? Yeah. <laughs> I think out of the three of us, you're the most likely to get the test questions right, maybe. I don't know. It, it really, like, I know I've talked about certain things that I've read about, but it's just my knowledge is specific to certain things. You could probably ask me tons of questions that I would get wrong. Okay. So. Well, listeners, we've covered three seasons of the science in Next Generation. You can tell there is a lot to talk about, especially relating to what we've seen here. Uh, We are going to pick this up and continue the other seasons. Uh, We will definitely have Joe back. Uh, Let's go through sort of the final thoughts. Justin, let's start with you. What uh, did you find interesting about these uh, first three seasons? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really interesting just to take a look at it this way to see all the different kinds of science. I mean, we're talking about how life is defined and holography and the theory of relativity and different diseases and, um, you know, different things that you can add to someone that might make them a super soldier and the periodic table. So we're getting into a lot of different kinds of science, biology and physics and chemistry and all kinds of stuff. So I think it's super interesting just in the first three seasons that there's all of this stuff that we can touch on and talk about what's happened since then and how all all the things that are really interesting. Like, and I've always found, I'm not a scientist myself, but I've always found science to be really interesting because there's all kinds of things you wouldn't expect that actually happen in, in science and things that are kind of weird and strange. We probably haven't even gotten into some of the strangest stuff yet, but um, I, I think it's just really interesting to look at it from this perspective, and I, I really enjoyed it. Hope our listeners did, and you know we can continue the conversation with, with even more seasons. So, Joe, I get asked all the time, and so I'm going to ask you, do you use Star Trek when you teach in your classroom? Occasionally. I don't think I do it as much as you but there'll be some points um, which have maybe relevant scenes in Star Trek that help kind of prove the point. But a lot of the time when I use kind of video clips of things that I think are cool, the kids don't. 
So sometimes a bit, sometimes a bit like a losing battle. Um, but I still, I still try. I think there's more that I can do. I took inspiration from you and created my Star Trek shrine last August after Star Trek Las Vegas. So keep on adding little bits. Now no doubt add more little bits this year. Do your kids ask you about it? Um, yeah, occasionally get it confused with Star Wars. Oh yeah, um, constantly. But I know, but it's <laughs> fine. They're young and naive. Yeah, they ask me about it and they say like, "Oh, my dad loves Star Trek, or my granddad loves Star Trek, or whatever." Um, so it's cool, and I think they like the fact they've got a teacher with a, a personality, and they're seeing some side to me that they would never really get to see. Yeah, which is important. Yeah, I just have to add, I mean, I did not even think about all the science that is there. I definitely feel much smarter after this hour of conversation and really look forward to discussing more of the science. I think you're right, Justin. We There's so much different types of sciences, the biology, the life, the physics, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity, like that blows my mind and uh, and, and then the real life connections of those syndromes, the Werner's, Werner's syndrome and progeria. Pro Did I say that right? Progeria. Yeah. Um, just so interesting. And neutronium and that periodic table, you know, and there's so little that I actually have to interact with. So like the only thing I really knew was the Michael Jackson hologram, but uh, just so, so interesting to see. You know, and again, why Star Trek is so great is because it's, you know, based off of real life stuff and just putting a futuristic spin on it. So I'm very looking forward to continuing our discussion and hitting the other seasons and how science is related. Okay, question one. Oh. <laughs> Cyberdyne created an exoskeletal suit. What was the name of this suit? The Red Angel suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is a test. There's no laughing during tests. Okay, okay. Sorry, sorry, listeners. Hopefully you've seen Discovery, but you haven't. That's a Discovery reference. But no, we're not going to take a test, Joe. It's HAL 5. Thank you, Amy. Correct. Justin, you (laughs) got it wrong. Minus five points. I failed. I'm a bad student. (laughs) Teachers are the best students, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. All right. Well, Joe, where can people find you to continue this amazing discussion about science in the next gen? Well, Scotland um, for a start. But if you're talking about on the interwebs, um, I'm usually lurking about Facebook somewhere. You can, if you tag me in a Babel conference post, I will be sure to reply. You can email me at joepodcasts at gmail.com and I use the Twitter or and my handle is it's called a handle isn't it yeah or username whatever okay at joey joe 77 uk so joe before you go i have to ask you a question because you created that email when you were first podcasting with us did you get any emails no no we talked about this in postcards with amy yesterday and i've not had any emails amy you said you were going to email me have you emailed me yet (laughs) I'm, that's, I've that's been editing no our Amy. postcards. I've been a little busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so Joe, give your yes. email one more time, and then we'll get people to send you something. Okay, and oh, right, hold on, I have to double check it. I think I'm sure it's. <laughs> I'm sure it's because you Joe. said some. You said different on on uh, postcards. You said pa- oh, podcaster, but then you just said okay. podcast. Okay, so it's Joe Podcasts. So podcast with an S at the end. Um, at gmail.com joepodcasts at gmail.com okay so you heard it listeners joepodcasts at gmail.com send him an email about what you think I'm refreshing my emails just now um, <laughs> that's not live no 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 okay. emails well okay. we'll, we'll get somebody listeners. to send you an email please we have yes the best listeners and I'm sure uh, the challenge has been set out so listeners go ahead and send Joe an email Well, Joe, thank you for coming on Earl Grey, and we are definitely looking forward to having you back for a couple more episodes to talk about science. This was kind of terrifying for me. I'm by no means an expert in science. I've just got kind of a a deep interest in it, Um, but it wasn't half as scary as I thought it was going to be. And it's a testament to you guys as hosts. You made me feel super comfortable. Well, thank you. Justin, are you doing Vegas this year? 
Yeah, I'll be there. Are you going? Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, that's right. You were there last year, yes. but I didn't yeah, really you know it. you. So were you there? Were you there the year before? Yes. Oh, I was there as well. Yeah, we keep missing each other, but you know what? We'll we'll make sure to meet up this time. Yes, absolutely, definitely. Amy yeah, I was there it. too. Remember, I gave you a shirt, and you didn't remember me. Yes. Joe. Well, now that you've been on several podcasts, he will remember you. <laughs> you talk, yeah. Well, it's been so much fun talking about science in The Next Generation with Joe Keegan, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. Like you said, some of the recent novels have gone with Commander Una, uh, which is, if I'm remembering correctly, they explain a name she's kind of adopted because... She got tired of people just calling her number one or something like that. But it's still referring to this backstory of her being the best of the best, being perfect from Illyria, which is a planet that embraces uh, genetic manipulation, I think, and, and you know that sort of thing, and, and breeding for the absolute best. And she was number one in her generation or something like that. Melodic Treks. So, but after I watched Star Trek Voyager, uh, and you know, I was aware of the existence of the uh, Mini Moog Voyager. Uh, I mean, it didn't take me long to just like, oh, it would be cool one day, like if I could acquire the the synth, you know, like the first thing I do with it is redo the Star Trek Voyager theme with it. Then wouldn't that be fun, you know, the Star Trek Voyager theme with performed by the Mini Moog Voyager, right? <laughs> Warp five. So I'm going to go to Sleeping Dogs for my next next episode here. Now, at this point in Star Trek, I'm really tired of the Klingons. And I was on my original watch of Enterprise, and I still am. I'm really, really tired of the Klingons. So did I say the right episode? Sleeping Dogs, I said, right? Yes. You're just looking at me funny here. I'm like, did I say Shadows of Pajama? <laughs> no, 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 you said Sleeping Dogs. <laughs> okay, good. So The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. She is with a fake him, and she even says, well, it's you, but it's really only my memory of you. Right. That line is heartbreaking. Yeah. I'm not the sappiest person on the planet by any stretch of the imagination. Anyone who has heard me talk for months on this network knows that. But this is heartbreaking stuff. Yeah. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. Now, listeners, we really are on YouTube. I went to my YouTube app, and it had little notifications, and I'm like, I rarely go onto YouTube. And I saw it, and there was the Trek FM podcast right there, and I clicked on it, and there I could listen. (laughs) I was so surprised. There all there. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, but, hey, I didn't just add this in because I thought it would be cool. We are actually on YouTube. I, you don't get to see us listeners. Yeah. I mean, you're still listening to a podcast, but still, it's another way for you to listen. I know. Like I thought that was stuff. pretty cool. So my new discovery this week. <laughs> <laughs> and Amy, before we continue, we talked about people listening for bonus content. So let's give them a little bit of bonus content. Okay. So we, so we talked about science in this episode. Do you have a favorite science subject. Now, this could be saying like physics or chemistry or whatever, or it could be a certain scientific thing you're really interested in. Do you have a favorite? Amy, be very careful with your answer. Okay. Oh, Joe has come back into the episode. <laughs> Sorry, I know. Are you, st- are you still recording, Joe? <laughs> yes. Okay, so we'll leave that in then. <laughs> All right. Um, this is... Very difficult because I mainly focus on mathematicians. Yeah. Um, However, we are currently in our rational 
unit, and that's uh, equations that have fractions, so numerators and denominators. And so there are a lot of uh, equations that are used in the physics realm uh, that use rational functions. And so a couple of them that my kids are actually researching and are going to do a presentation next week is the wavelength formula and then the uh, gravity. I'm so sorry. I really, the gravity formula, because you have the mass and then it's divided by something. Um, I obviously don't teach it. My kids are going to teach me because I made them research it. So I will be much smarter and able to answer the questions in a couple weeks when my students are done presenting. I like that. Nice. Well, for me, I would probably have to say, and again, I'm not a scientist. I don't have like a deep technical understanding of these things. But since I first started reading about it in high school, I love quantum physics because it's so incredibly bizarre because it's the physics of the things at a really small level at the level of, you know, atoms and subatomic particles and things like that. And there's some bizarre things that happen down there, like not being able to tell both the speed and position of a, a particle at any one time and things getting entangled together so that they have, they affect each other, even if they're all the way across the other end of the universe, like instantaneous interaction, basically. So there's all kinds of, so I like the bizarre stuff that's in quantum physics. And they're starting to use some of those kinds of things for quantum computers. So there's actual applications for it and lots of other things. So anyway, that's my favorite just because it's weird. So listeners, if you want to have your mind blown, just read a little bit about quantum physics and all the weird stuff because it's totally bizarre, but it's totally true. <laughs> so anyway, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. And there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. And listeners, I do believe that we have had some amazing emails, so keep them coming. They are just wonderful. You can find also the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. So Justin, where can people contact you when you're not delving into what kind of physics did you like? Quantum physics. Quantum physics. Well, when I'm not doing that, which I don't know, sometimes I do it just when I'm daydreaming and that's a weird thing to daydream about. Anyway, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Still tweeting out my Season 7 rewatch of The Next Generation, but I'm making some progress. I think I should finish it sometime this year. Um, <laughs> but I tweet about lots of other Star Trek stuff, too. So you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. So, Amy, where can people contact you when you're not approaching the speed of light and time traveling? Yes, while you guys can catch up to my age. That sounds like a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> well, you can find me here on the network where I am doing Postcards from the Edge, which talks about the fan response of Star Trek Discovery. I'm also on the Edge main show with Patrick Devlin, also stock talking Star Trek Discovery. I am on the Fandom Podcast Network on Discoville, where we talk about the Orville and Discovery. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson, and I am also on the Babel Conference. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And we'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, Michael Huter, Thomas Appel, and our newest associate producer. Thank you, listeners, for accepting this challenge, and that is Chris Trebuzio. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and especially Earl Grey. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for taking our challenge and becoming an associate producer. We hope other listeners will do the same. 
So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Ugly bags of mostly water. Great joy and gratitude.